And the way we left it last week, you think, what in the world are Joshua, the elders, and the people of Israel going to do now? They are, they're what you might say in a real pickle. They cross the Jordan River. They're camped out. They're completely exposed in the land of Canaan. And they've just experienced a bitter loss by the army of Ai. As verse 9 of chapter 7 states, Joshua cries before the Lord and he says, For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? They're worried about getting surrounded with no, by, the, by the enemy army with no walls to hide behind. As you saw last week in the map, uh, the city of Ai, um, across from, from Jericho, again, is a very strategic city to, uh, now that they've gone through the front door of the land of Canaan, through Jericho, to be able to get a centralized location. Well, amidst this chaos, and that's what it is, and doesn't sin always bring chaos? Amidst this chaos, Joshua and the elders of Israel, they do the right thing. They run straight to God because they know. There they are, encamped out in in, in Gilgal, and they know that that God is their only hope. And last week, we set out to start looking at a few of the seven observations from Joshua 7 that warn us of the danger of festering sin and that call us to run into the arms of Jesus. Last week, we looked at the first three of of seven. First of all, we saw from verse 1 that God requires faithfulness. And and verse 1 said the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. Verses 2 and 5, we read, 2 through 5, we read of Israel's defeat. 36 men are dead. It could have been a lot worse. The second observation was God must be with us. They assumed God's presence. And then we close last week looking at verses 6 to 9. The third observation is we must run to God for refuge. Many times we are quick to run to other people, friends, even counselors for issues that we know at their core have to do with sin. And we see that Joshua and the elders, they run straight to God and they just lay it out before him. They don't start, Joshua doesn't start out with words of praise and, and, and God, mighty are you, and, and tries to sugarcoat his, his emotions. He says, God, what's going on here? 
He doesn't complain about God, which what we, we read the Israelites did. That's not the way we should pray, complaining about God, but we should be honest to pour out our hearts to God. This morning, we're going to look at the four final observations that we see in Joshua 7, and we are going to once again be reminded that a faith that conquers is a faith in Christ. And the battle of Ai is a beautiful picture for us, as we will see, of the gospel. And our faith that is to be rooted in Christ is to be a faith that runs to find refuge in Christ. Because I don't know about you, but I can't defeat sin on my own. I can't guard against sin and not give in to sin by the power of the flesh. The flesh can't defeat the flesh. There has to be something more. So this morning, I want to encourage you, I want to encourage myself once again to run to the arms of Jesus. Let's pray and we're going to look at these four final lessons or observations. Let's pray. Father, guide our time together. Lord, do what you have already promised to do. That when your word goes out, it will not return void. Lord, your word is always working in our hearts. Just as we see in the example of the Israelites. Lord, for some, your word works in, 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 their, in individuals' hearts. That they respond to the gospel in faith and obedience. Lord, for others, the gospel, the, your word is working in their hearts just as much. But the word is hardening their hearts. As they reject, reject the truths they hear. Oh God, I pray that we would be those who respond with tenderness in obedience. God, would we not allow our hearts to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin that we see having taken place in Achan? Lord, be at work this morning. Here in this room, in the auditorium, in our nursery, in our, our kids' church where the Gospel is going out. Lord, would it soften our hearts and penetrate into the deepest recesses of our hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Lesson number four that we see from this, these events at AI is that God will expose sin. God will expose sin. If He didn't expose sin, He wouldn't be God. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Now what we do not realize many times as Christians, if you're a Christian here, is that God exposing our sin, when God exposes sin in our lives, 
He's actually doing it in commitment to us. You remember the, the, the passage, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines or chastens. God exposes our sin in commitment to us. You see, Joshua is on his face. The elders are on their face, ashes on their head, their clothes torn in grief. And he's there like that the whole evening. But Joshua need not wallow in confusion. What does God say to Joshua in verse 10? The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. God lays it out for Joshua. He says, get up, Joshua. Why are you on your face? Now, um, you can read that and get the idea that, that God is being short with Joshua. But that's not the idea. God is doing exactly what Joshua is praying for. God, would you reveal what is going on? Because why have we had to turn back from our enemies? Are you being unfaithful to us and therefore unfaithful to your great name? No, God's going to be very faithful to his name and to his people by exposing this to Joshua. I like what Dale Ralph Davis says regarding God's response to Joshua. He says this, in wrath, Yahweh remembers mercy. A mercy visible in the revelation of Yahweh's wrath. God does not allow Joshua and Israel to grope in the dark, but reveals to them the cause of his displeasure. God is being faithful by revealing this sin. In a sin, it is. In verse 11, we see that Israel has indeed committed a great act of sin. At the end of verse 11, they have taken some of the devoted things. These things that were devoted, we read in chapter 6, they were, they were things that were to be devoted to God. They were dedicated to God God has given the victory, so everything in the city is to be destroyed, and the gold and the silver is to be put into the treasury for God's tabernacle, for the temple. In dedication to the Lord. So this act of sin is literally, it's violating God's covenant with the people. You know, it's really interesting that that word transgressed, it, they have transgressed my covenant. It's the, it's the word you could, that can also be translated, they have crossed over. In fact, it's the same word used repeatedly in chapter 6 
of crossing the Jordan River. There they were in obedience to God. And they crossed over the river. But here, they cross over in disobedience and they defy God's covenant with them. And then the end of verse 11, it it mentions four specific sins that were involved in this breach of covenant, this breach of trust. They've transgressed the covenant that I commanded them. It goes on, God says they have taken some of the devoted things, they have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. The four specific sins we see here is they took... And very similarly, they stole, they lied, and then they put them among their own things. What was God's, the people made their own. You see, God exposes our sin in commitment to us. No one else may know. But God does. And you know, not only that, but verse 12 tells us that sin always has consequences. In verse 12, it it says, Therefore the people of Israel, God continues, Therefore the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. What's the first consequence of this sin? There's no way forward. They will not be able to stand. No, instead, they turn their backs before their enemies, the text says. It's exactly what God said and warned in Deuteronomy 28. If you are unfaithful to me, God says, you're going to come before your enemies and, and scatter seven ways. If you're faithful, Your enemies will scatter seven ways. There's simply no way forward. One man's sin jeopardized the entire nation. And now, without dealing with the sin, there's simply no way forward. God cannot leave sin unaddressed I don't know about you but that's a big deal and not only that but what's another consequence because of this sin they're not stand they can't stand before their enemies because verse the middle of verse 12 says they have become devoted for destruction. Wow, the people of Israel themselves are now in the very same situation as Jericho and all the belongings of Jericho were. They are devoted for destruction. This is exactly what God warned in chapter 6, verse 18. Keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things into the, and make the camp of Israel a thing devoted for destruction and bring trouble upon it. 
by taking what they desired, they have now become what they have desired. That's the second consequence that's here. They have become what they have idolized. It's like the, uh, the book uh, one individual, Greg Beale, wrote, you become, I forget the exact title, uh, you become what you idolize, and it's, and it's a book about idolatry and what the Bible says about idolatry and how those who worship idols in Scripture actually become like that. This is a very present danger for us. It's so easy to make other things become idols in our lives and we wind up becoming like the idol we pursue. It may not be bowing down to a, gold, a golden statue, you know that. But man, we start to idolize things like money. And our whole life becomes characterized by the pursuit of the next dollar. And what happens? Our hearts become filled with greed. They become filled with discontent. And you can say we, the, the human heart is actually becoming just like the very thing it's chasing after. You think of lust. The, what's the next way for self-gratification? What's, what's the next thing? And, and, and your very mind and heart becomes just like the thing that you're pursuing. Think of materialism. Getting the next object. Your life becomes something that is consumed by things that perish, and when that thing doesn't satisfy, it's on to the next. And your life becomes consumed by the very thing that you're chasing. I mean, you can go down the list of the things that, that we as, as people and as Christians are so prone to pursue. And then the things that you in your individual life are prone to pursue. You think of people-pleasing, wanting people to like you. And before you know it, you see that I've lost myself because I'm so busy doing what everybody else expects. Like the book of Isaiah says, individuals carve for themselves an idol and become just as foolish as that lifeless block of wood. This is a huge consequence of sin, folks. And then at the end of verse 12, what does God say? This is the worst part. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. See, the third consequence here is they have lost the power of God's presence. God's powerful presence would no longer be at work unless they deal with this sin. It is not that Somehow, God is 
no longer among them in, in the sense that God is omnipresent, that God's presence encompasses all things. It is that His relational presence, His power would no longer be among His people. But that's not the end of the story. You see, God graciously pursues His people. The same God that brings sin up to the surface is the same God that pursues the people in whose sin has been brought up. Verse 13, again, we have the same exact command that we have in verse, in verse 10. Get up! Get up! Consecrate the people or uh, have them set themselves apart. Prepare to meet God, basically. He says, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. God graciously pursues His people. He calls Joshua to action. It's almost as if Imagine this, God is more eager for Joshua to deal with this than Joshua himself is. Go Joshua! Go now! Do not delay! You see, they are to meet with God and God will reveal the guilty party. God will expose sin. There's so many times that we blame God for things when in reality, God is the one who is doing the pursuing. It is we who have transgressed, who have crossed over. But I want to keep reading here before we tie things together. Tie too much together. The next lesson or observation that we see in this passage, the fifth observation is, not only does God expose sin, and in doing that, He really is pursuing us, but God requires accountability for sin. You may say, Pastor Adam, this is, this is heavy. And it is heavy. You may say, I, hope, I thought there was gospel hope here. And there is gospel hope. But before we can get to the reality of the hope, we have to get to the reality of the hopelessness. God requires accountability for sin. Why does God require accountability for sin? Let's read verse 14. This is Joshua getting up and taking action. In the morning, therefore, this is Joshua's talking to the people, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near by man. 
Listen, God cares about each individual heart. Don't you think it would probably be easy if you were an Israelite, thousands upon thousands of people, to maybe see the big picture that God is the God of us, but I'm just one among thousands. Is God the God of me? Does God really take notice of me? Yes, God is the God of Israel, and God is even the God of Joshua. But is God my God? You see, God cares about each individual heart. I mean, we see this with the effects of this sin, right? This sin was a blemish not just on who we will, will be revealed, Achan, but it is a blemish on the whole nation. The one affects the whole. God cares about each individual heart. Say, Pastor Adam, I wish I believed that, but sometimes it doesn't feel that way. And that is why we can't live by feelings. He is a near God. Scripture says it over and over and over again. In fact, the word near is used four times just in verse 14. You shall be brought near in the context of near the Lord by your tribes. And then near by clans. And then near by households. And then near man by man. You have these, these circles that are getting more and more narrowed until it's individuals. An infinite God does not get encumbered by the details. I know I can get confused in the details. Not only the details of my, lives, my life, but the details. You know, Rachel will be telling me something that's not that complex, and before you know it, my mind starts you know, going somewhere and, and uh, get lost in the details. All you other guys look really pious right now, like this doesn't happen to you. God doesn't. No one individual, the, the God that knows each hair that's on our head. You all are thinking of the joke. You know, some are easier to keep track of than others. That same God... No one escapes his notice. He is a near God. How else do we know that God cares about each individual heart? He is a patient God. I mean, wouldn't it have been easier for God to just say, Joshua, go over to go to the to, to the area where the tribe of Judah is encamped and get Achan. Look under his tent. You're going to find the source of your problem. God could have done that. I mean, God already says in our verse, I'm going to reveal the person that did this. So why didn't he just reveal it right away? He's a patient God. He's wanting Israel to see 
that it is not simply the whole, it's the individuals that encompass the whole. You know, even in a church setting, isn't it? I mean, and we're not a, 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 a really large church. We're pretty, we're probably a little above average for, for our area, but we're not a large church. But even in a church our size, isn't it easy to think, I just get lost in the mix? Or does it really matter how I'm living? Does it really matter what I am saying, what I am doing? It's just me. You are not lost with God. God sees all things. Every action, good or bad, we give an account for. Man, that's both, that's both an encouragement and a, and a, and a, uh, a warning, isn't it? Like what one individual said, he said, instead of forming the people directly, informing the people directly about the identity of the offender, the Lord chooses the indirect means of the lot. This serves to awaken in the people an awareness of their involvement in the sin committed. And at the same time, it lets the full light fall upon the individual who committed it. You see, they are in this together. We as individuals of Covington Baptist Church, we are in this together. It's one of the significances of, of church membership is, is saying, yes, I see that this is not about the one, it's about the whole. We are in this together. We have committed ourselves together. We also see from this passage, He is a knowing God. How many times do we let sin slide in our lives and we act as if God doesn't know? You see, God cares about each individual heart. And the next verse, verse 15, shows us that all will give an account to Him. doesn't matter if you're the great or you're the small. Joshua continues and says, And he who is taken with the devoted thing shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. The very devoted things in chapter 6, verse 18, God says, devote these to fire. The individual who has, who has taken those devoted things will he himself be burned with fire. Why? Because they have transgressed an, uh, an act of blatant defiance and rebellion and they've brought folly in Israel. That word folly means something of an immoral shame and disgrace has now come. Man, what do you think Aiken's thinking right now? As I was looking over this passage, I was, I was reminded, I haven't thought about this story in, in, in years. But um, when I was in high school, uh, there was a group of us guys that were, that were uh, at our church gym playing a pickup game of basketball. There were was, there was several guys, I went to a Christian school, there were several guys from the the church slash school that, 
were on the basketball team that I was playing with. There were also some, some just guys in the town that had come. Well, one of my friends, um, he, had, uh, he had taken off his, his gold chain and he had put it to the side with his stuff. And we, were playing, we played for, I don't know, an hour or two. And when it was time to go, we were all getting our belongings, getting ready to go. And, and my friend uh, said, where's my gold chain? And we were all like, we don't know. And, and we all knew each other except for maybe two or three guys that had come in to play. And, and nobody was fessing up, like, where's, where's the chain? You know, he's like, I know I put it right here. Well, uh, my friend's dad came to pick him up, and, uh, and he wasn't the most patient of guys, so he went ahead and called the police because uh, nobody was fessing up. So the, poli- the police officer comes, and he says, all right, guys, you know, let's just fess up. Who took it? And everybody's kind of sheepishly, you know, Nobody was saying anything, so the, the officer was like, all right, one by one, I'm going to have to search you guys. Um, so my, this, this, this other guy who we knew, you know, again, we were all friends. Uh, the police officer starts with that guy, and, um, you know, he has got to put his hands on the wall, spread his arms and legs, and get the pat down, and kind of, he had the most awkward look on his face, Eventually, the guy that took it fessed up and said, okay, I took it. On a very low-key scale, that's kind of the same scenario we have going on here, isn't it? And, and in that setting, as I think back upon that, man, the whole place was tense. Now, no pun intended, because obviously they were all intense, you know, and, and the, the devoted things were under a tent. But... I mean tense, T-E-N-S-E. We were, I knew that I didn't take that gold chain. But like, I'm like feeling in my pockets and nobody planted this thing, right? You know, whoever took it didn't just slip it in my back pocket without me realizing. I was nervous and I didn't do anything wrong. Because you sense the gravity of the situation. And there's an authority presence, the police, that are there. I mean, this is like infinitely worse. This is the God of the universe. And you're thinking, honey, I know I didn't take anything, but let's scour that tent. This is heavy. In verses 16 to 21, The sixth lesson that we see. Good, evil, righteous, unrighteous, sinner, saint. It doesn't matter. One day, every tongue will make confession to God. Even that guy that that took that golden chain, Before they even got to him to pat him down, he made confession. I did it. The fear of the situation brought about a confession. How much more will every tongue one day make confession to God? 
Isn't that what Philippians 2 tells us? Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Now that's not going to be in a saving sense, just like we see with Achan. But everyone will make confession to God, whether it's in defiance of submission or in complete submission. You see, God, once again, is the great revealer. Verse 16, so Joshua rose early in the morning. Again, we see this early in the morning. We saw it with the crossing of the Jordan. We saw it with the going around Jericho. And now we see it again. He brought Israel near, tribe by tribe. And all of a sudden, the tribe of Judah, it says, was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah. And the clan of the Zarahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zarahites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Man, you note the progression here. Starting big, individual by individual, all the way down, is brought before the Lord. The lots are cast. No, it's not this tribe. No, it's not this clan. No, it's not this household. No, it's not this individual until it is. One of the greatest awakenings to the realities and the consequences of sin is when we see the consequences and the revelation of sin in someone else's life. I can't think of every time I read of of pastors who have fallen uh, into immorality or uh, into greed and, and, and money fraud and all of those things, it is a dire warning To him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. That's one of God's acts of grace to say, guard yourself. And I wonder how many of us this morning are playing with fire in whatever type sin or situation it is, thinking that somehow you won't get burned. How did that work with Achan? Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Man, there's a verse against gossip and backbiting more than anything, right? Right? Every word will be brought to account. Every action. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, and and this is to the Corinthian church. This is to our church. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. 
and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Well, God, don't you have more important people to worry about than me? God cares about each individual heart. All will stand accountable to Him. And not only that, but verse 19 shows us that confession brings glory to God. So Achan is now exposed. The lot has fallen to him. Yes, it is him. Joshua says to Achan, verse 19, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to, uh, to Him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan, what have you done to bring this upon us? Hide it no longer. Joshua makes a plea as a father to a wayward child, as one individual put it. Joshua gives reverence to God. He says, give glory to God by confessing this. Give God His rightful place. And then as we look at verses 20 to 21, we see just how deceitful sin is. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. First of all, sin is admitted. He admits his sin. Now you may ask, Pastor Adam, is this a sin of repentance, or is this simply a confession? And I believe that if repentance was truly in Achan's heart, this whole process would not have happened. If repentance was in Achan's heart, there wouldn't have been this tribe by tribe, clan by clan, household by household, individual by individual. This is a confession of, I got caught. But we have to observe the pattern of the deceitfulness of sin in verse 21. Achan is slow to confess his sin, we see, but he does readily, when he's found out, he readily admits that he did wrong. And then we see this pattern. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful cloak from Shinar, Shinar is Babylon, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. Here we see the pattern for sin. And this pattern is true in all of our lives. This is a universal pattern for sin. The first is sight. He says, when I saw... And you note the descriptions of, of what he saw. A beautiful cloak, 200 shekels of silver, a bar of gold. He saw something. And whether it's physical sight or whether it is emotional sight or, or uh, 
whatever it is, something catches our attention. Something outside of Christ, of God's plan. And then what's the next thing that happens? There's desire. He says, I saw them and then I coveted them. Exactly what God, when He gives Israel the law in Exodus 20, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. He saw and he began to desire. And then that led to action. He took. You know, 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. All sin falls in these categories. Yes, there's overlap, but all sin falls in these categories. That which appeals to the fleshly desires, that could be anything physical or, or something that's not tangible, but people's approval, power, all of those things. The desires of the eyes, what can be seen, and the pride of life, the pride that lurks within each heart. Pride that many times manifests itself in different ways, but there's pride in each of our hearts. Pride to be known, pride to not be known. Both are pride. And folks, what we see in Joshua 7, there could not be a greater way that the one author of Scripture, though there were many authors, God is the ultimate author, He could not be doing anything greater. Not even, the reason I'm doing this is I'm imagining in my mind, I should say what I'm doing, a jumping jacks. It's like God's doing jumping jacks. <laughs> um. He could not be doing anything greater than to draw our attention to how the clutches of sin is desirous of each one of us. Why? Because this same pattern that we read of in verse 21 is a pattern from the beginning of time. The very same words that Achan uses to describe his process of sin are the very same words that describe the first sin in the Bible in Genesis 3.6. In fact, I have those underlined for you. So when the woman saw the tree, just like Achan saw the possessions, well, what did she see? It was good for food. Did you know that in verse 21, that word beautiful, cloak, is the same Hebrew word as good, the word tov? He saw that this cloak was good. How many times do we think, ah, 
This is what I want. It's good. She saw it was a delight to the eyes that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. That word desire is the same word coveted in verse 21. You know what Eve coveted? To be as wise as God. Then, what does she do? She takes of the fruit. Folks, the reason why this is a pattern from the beginning of time is because of the human heart, not the circumstances. This is a problem we all face. Men, as husbands, as leaders, are you going to lead yourself and your family down a path that is not what God would have because of giving in? Wives, will you do the same? Will you do this in your own life? We have to ask ourselves as as a church, are we giving in to things outside of Christ? whether it's grudges or bitterness or, or desire for whatever it is, that we know is a road of destruction at the end. But the last lesson as we close is that God is a God of salvation and judgment. And here is where we begin to see Just like in verse 21, a tie-in to Genesis, there's something greater going on here. We see that this story is to show us the gospel. Not only for unbelievers, but for believers. You see, what happens in verses 22 to 23, the forbidden was returned. So Achan fesses up, Joshua sent messengers, they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. The forbidden was returned. They bring this out before the Lord. I bet in Achan's eyes that beautiful cloak maybe didn't look as beautiful as it did in Jericho. That silver and that gold didn't look quite as worth as much as now as it did then. Was it worth his life? Doesn't sin do that to us? Promises everything up front and in the end is destruction. Isn't that the exact opposite of the Christian life? Jesus repeatedly says the Christian life, it is hard, it is full of trial, it is difficult, but at the end is the reward. Reading through a kid's version of Pilgrim's Progress with, uh, with Sammy and just reminded of that truth. Well, judgment had to be enacted. At the end of verse 
Or in verse 24, it says, And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remain to this day. A holy God must judge sin. Judgment was enacted. Not only did Lot himself fall, but his, own, his whole family fell with him. More than likely, his family knew about this act of Achan. The Scripture doesn't tell us, so that's not a point that we need to, to take too much time thinking about. But man, man, what a wake-up call to us. But folks, that's not the end. Because we see at the end of verse 26 that restoration was now made possible and completed. It says, Then the Lord turned from His burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor or the Valley of Trouble. God's burning anger. Remember last week talked about His anger burned. It's, it's the, in the Hebrew, His nose, His face flared. It's like when your nostrils get big and your face gets red with anger. Except this is holy anger. And now that anger was turned away. You see folks, what is this text ultimately pointing us to? I've said over and over again so in this series that, Josh, that, this path, that the book of Joshua points us to the greater Joshua, Jesus. And not only is Jesus the greater Joshua, but Jesus in the fullness of Scripture we read is also the greater Achan, isn't he? Isn't it almost seem, seem blasphemous to say that? But what does the Scripture say? He who knew no sin became sin for us. Just like Achan, Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. And He pays for the penalty of the broken covenant of His people. So that God's wrath and anger against sin would be fully satisfied. And folks, if you are a believer today, you need to run to the feet of Jesus, seeing the vast holiness of God and how sinful we are, and to say, Jesus, thank You for not only being my leader, greater than Joshua, but thank you for doing for me what Joshua could never do for the people. You also became Achan. 
And how can we, Christian, who have been rescued from such wrath and eternal destruction, now be so blasphemous to live in sin today? Because that pull of sin, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, it's still really alive in my heart. I think it's probably in yours too, right? Are you going to give in willingly to those things when Christ has given Himself as your your payment? Maybe today you say, you know what? Maybe everybody in this room feels that I'm a follower of Jesus, and I know in my heart I'm not. I'm just going with the flow. Maybe you've been raised in this church, you're a member of this church, whatever the case is. The same God that knew every heart among thousands in the nation of Israel is the same God that knows your heart. Now is the time of salvation. 